0: Jaya Vrajajana Ranjana Jaya Jashoda Nanana Jaya Vrajajana Ranjana Jaya, Yamuna Jaya, Kunjabi Hari Jaya. Jaya Jamunatirava Nachari Jaya Kunjabi Jaya Jaya Radha Madava Jaya
1: Bihari.
0: Jaya Jaya Radha Jaya 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 Gopi Lava, Jaya Girivara Dharin, Jaya Girivara Dharin, Jaya Gopi Lava, Jaya Girivara Jaya, Jashodhanan, Jaya, Raja Jaya, Raja Jaya, Jashodhanan, Jaya, Raja Jaya. jaya jamuna chari jaya gunjavi hare jaya jamuna chari jaya gunjavi hare jaya
2: Shri Radha Govinda Ki Jai, Shri Gaur Ki Jai, Shri Jaganatha Paladeva Supadramaniha Ki Jai, Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.
0: Bhagavate Om Namo Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya
2: Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto four, chapter three, text eighteen. Talks the chapter is entitled Talks Between Lord Shiva and Sati. Naita Drashanam
0: Swajanavikshaya
2: Naita Drashanam, Swab Jana Yapikshaya, Grihan, Pratiyad, Anabas Tatmanam, Yep, Yagatan, Vakra diya Bichakshate, Aro Pita, Brubhir, Amar Amar Shanakshibi. So I'll chant now and we can repeat. Okay. Naita Drashanam Swajanavya Pekshaya. Grihan Pratiya Danavas Grihan
0: pratiya
2: Bhagatan
0: Vakradia Bichakshate. Yayam Bichakshate. Aro Pita Pru Biramarshanakshivi. Naita Drashanam Swajanavya VYAPEKSHAYA
2: GRIHAN PRATIYA DAVA NAVASTI TATMANAM YABHYAGATAN VAKRADIYA VICHAKSHATE ARO PITABRU BIRAMAR SHANAKSHIVI Naitadrashanam
0: svajaanavikshayam, tadrashanam svachanaviksha,
2: grihan pratiadanavasti tatmana,
0: griam pratiyadanavastimanam,
2: Yebyagatam Vakradiyabi Chakshate, Yadyanam Vakra Dyabi
0: Sojanapa Pixayan,
2: Pratia, the Vastitatman,
0: Grihan, Pratia, the
2: Itadrashanam like this this. svajana kinsman Kinsman. vyapekshaya depending on that that. grihan Grihan, in the house of of. pratiyat one should go go. anavastita Anavastita, disturbed Atmanam, Atmanam Mind, mind. Ye, Ye Those, those. Abhyagatan, Abhyagatan, Abhyagatan Guests, guests. Vakradiya with, with, with a cold reception Abhichakshate, Abhichakshate, Abhichakshate Looking at Aropita Bruhi. with raised eyebrows, eyebrows. Amarshana angry, Angry. Akshibi, with the eyes. eyes. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. bhagavad Swami, Srila Prabhupada. Jai Prabhupada. One should not go to anyone's house even on the consideration of his being a relative or a friend, when the man is disturbed in his mind and looks upon the guest with raised eyebrows and angry eyes. Please repeat. One should not go to anyone's house, even on the consideration of his being a relative or a friend friend. when the man man is disturbed disturbed in his mind mind. and looks upon upon the guest with raised raised eyebrows eyebrows and and angry eyes. PURPORT However low a person may be, he is never unkind his children, wife, and nearest kin. Even a tiger is kind to its cubs, for within the animal kingdom, the cubs are treated very nicely. Since Sati was the daughter of Daksha, however cruel and contaminated he might be, naturally it was expected that he would receive her very nicely. But here it is indicated by the word anavastita. That such a person cannot be trusted. Tigers are very kind to their cubs but it is also known that sometimes they eat them. Malicious persons should not be trusted because they are always unsteady. Thus Sati was advised not to go to her father's house because to accept such a father as a relative, and to go to his house without being properly invited, was not suitable. Oma oh, jnana dimirandasya shalakaya chakshurun militam yena tasmai shri guruve namaha shri jaitanya manobhishtam sthapitam yena bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Dadati Svapadantikam Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utapadakamalam Shri Gurum Vaishnavamsha Shri Rupam Sagrachatam Sahagana Raghunathanvitam Tamsa Jeevam Sadvaitam Savadutam Parijana Saitam Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padan Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakhanvitamstra Hey, Krishna, Karuna, Sindhu, Dina, Bandhu, Jagatpate, Gopesha, Gopika, Kanta, Shirada, Kanta, Namostute, Tapta, Kanchana, Gaurangi, Rade, Brindavan, Eshwari, Vrishabhanam, Stam, Devi, Pranamami, Hari, Priye, Vanchakalpa tarubhyascha kripasindu bhaevacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnabebhyo namo namaha namam vishnupadaya krishna pristaya bhutale śrimate giriraja swamini tinamine namam vishnupadaya krishna pristaya bhutale śrimate bhaktivedanta swamini tinamine namaste saraswati deve gorabhani pracharine Nirvishesha Sarnivadi Deshatarine Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri advaita Gadadhar Shiva Sadi Guru Bhakta Brinda, Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare So I humbly beg the blessings of Shri Shri Radha Govinda Shri Chakarnath Valdiv Supadramaya and Shishigornitai, our predecessor Acharyas, Srila Prabhupada, and my Gurudev, that I may, and the assembled Vaishnavas, that may I, I may speak something in line with the Siddhanta and beneficial to hear. So we are now in the midst, in the thick of the deep conversation between Shiva and Sati. Just for a recap, since it's been a while since we visited this uh, section of the Bhagavatam. Daksha, Sati's father, was performing great sacrifices. It said the brhaspati shava and the Vajapaya. And she was actually located with Shiva on Kailash. But from her vantage point, she could see different personalities that were en route going to her father's home. Uh, She could see the wives of these personalities dressed in fine clothing and glittering ornaments. And mystically, even though they were quite far away, because the technology was such, she could even hear their conversations. And she came to know that Uh, These personalities are going to her father's home. And so, naturally, it sparked a desire in her heart to go. She wanted to go accompanied by her husband. Sati means chaste. So, she doesn't want to go anywhere without her husband. So, in her anxiety, she presents an argument to Lord Shiva. To convince him to go. She has what we call in uh, modern day parlance FOMO, fear of missing out. Right? And the problem is that she didn't have an invitation. Essentially, she wanted to crash the party, right? So she tells Shiva, Lord Shiva, that uh, If you desire to go, then we can go. Even though we don't have an invitation, if you are willing to go, then we will go. Because Lord Shiva does not act whimsically. So she was deferring to her husband. She tells him that her sisters will be there with their husbands. That it will be a great family reunion. And she desires to see her mother. She desires to see her sisters and relatives. She claims that she can decorate her body with the fine jewelry and ornaments that were given to her her by her father, Daksha. And she's desirous to attend the function and see the pomp and circumstance, see the flapping flags and the great sacrifice that is going on. She expresses all this to Lord Shiva. In fact, she becomes a little bit carried away even thinking that it will be wonderful, that she will go, she'll be received, everything will be happy and joyous. Uh, And finally, she states that she is not self-realized, that Lord Shiva is self-realized, but she is not. And so she is still attached to her birthplace. She is still attached to her birth family. So she entreats Lord Shiva. She begs him, please be kind to me. In fact, in one of the previous verses, she is addressed as Dakshayani. Dakshayani means the daughter of Daksha. She's identifying with this bodily designation as being the daughter of Daksha. And if Daksha is having a great sacrifice, naturally, the daughter of Daksha should be going. And and she states that an invitation is altogether unnecessary. Uh, in two verses prior to this verse that we're speaking about today, she states, even though you may be considering that I have not been invited, there is no harm if one goes to the house of one's friend, husband, spiritual master, or father without an invitation. So that is the crux of her argument. She's saying that this is my father, I don't need an invitation to go. So let's go. And I want you to come, please. I want to be accompanied by you. So Lord Shiva, he responds to his dear wife in a very, very nice way. Even though he was the, on the receiving end of malicious, heart-piercing words, Slander. He smiles at his wife. It's a lesson how to interact in the Grihastha Ashram. So Lord Shiva, he replies smilingly, counters her argument. He claims, in the previous verse, which was discussed yesterday, he claims that Daksha, because of all his opulence, his tremendous opulence, he has become proud and blind. And hence, he is not in the right state of mind. In today's verse, the word that is used to describe this state of mind of is anavastitatmanam. So we can break this word into two parts. Anavastitatmanam means disturbed mind. Okay. Anavastitā means disturbed. If you take the word anavastitā, you take away the an from the beginning, the prefix, it becomes avastā, or situation, or location. So when one person is rightly situated, the vyavastā, the avastā is correct. So anavastā is the opposite of that meaning it's improperly situated. And atmanam. So the word atma can mean many things in Sanskrit. It can mean the body. It can mean the soul. It can mean the mind. But in this context, Śrīla Prabhupāda has translated it as mind. So together, we have anabasthita disturbed mind. So this word is describing Daksha's position. Daksha is not in a proper mental state. That is what Lord Shiva is stating. And because he is not in a proper mental state, he cannot be trusted. In in, in a certain way you can compare him to a psychiatric patient. Right? Somebody who's a in a psychiatric hospital or is suffering from a psychiatric illness is, is not in their right frame of mind. And the decisions they make uh, may be incorrect. So he uses this word and he is foreshadowing in this verse that uh, Daksha Even though Sati is Daksha's pet daughter, his favorite daughter, out of all the daughters he has, he's uh, most favorable to her. But because he is in in, a disturbed state of mind, he will abuse his daughter. Um, His mind is situated on the mental platform. And because the mind is situated on the mental platform, it is unsteady. It cannot be trusted. So this is an interesting point because Daksha means expert, right? He's uh, one would think that he has, you know, uh, full capability of his mental faculties, but we find Lord Shiva is is claiming is stating that his mind is not in the proper situation, and then he goes on to fur- further to say that. If somebody has such a relative, uh, then they should not be considered a true relative. They may be a relative just by virtue of biology, right? But the point that one goes without an invitation to the home of a friend or father or, or spiritual master or husband only holds when that person is in the right state of mind. In the purport, Śrīla Prabhupāda speaks about tigers. He says that even a wild animal like a tiger takes care of its cubs. But that same tiger, because a soul in a tiger's body is is, uh, steeped in ignorance and is unsteady, so even that same animal can lash out and kill its own cub. And when I read this, it made me think about, you know, nowadays, it's quite common. Well, not common, but at least it's, uh, there are instances of people raising these uh, large cats, tigers, uh, domesticating them. And they acquire them when they're cubs, when they're quite young and they raise them. And there's pictures of them hugging the tigers, you know, frolicking with them. But then those same animals, even though they've been domesticated, even though they're habituated to their masters, uh, sometimes there are instances when uh, they lose control. They may have, in a fit of rage, they may lash out. They may swat their masters. And if you just think, you know, a tiger is a 1,000-pound animal. It swats you. There's going to be serious damage, right? Siegfried and Roy, you know, in Las Vegas, very, very famous entertainers. They work with tigers. And uh, one of them actually uh, had a devastating injury as a result of an accident with a tiger. So the point that is being made is the mind, an unsteady mind, an untrained mind, is like a wild animal, right? Unless it is fixed, uh, it can lash out. It can act in an irresponsible way. And this is precisely what happens in this story. Daksha lashes out. His heart is uh, filled with animosity and enmity, and he doesn't act nor behave properly. He doesn't follow proper etiquette, and the consequences are devastating. So I would like to spend the rest of uh, the class speaking about the mind, because that is a salient point from today's verse. Atmanam, anabasti atmanam, disturbed mind. So, would anybody like to tell me their conception of what the mind is? This is a open forum now. Anybody want to chime in? Jai. Mother Nidra.
1: So just to get things going, um Srila Prabhupada taught us how it's the subtle body, thinking, feeling and willing.
0: I was thinking of the analogy of the chariot. So there's the passenger, the living entity, <clears throat> and then there's the driver, the intelligence, and then the intelligence is connected to the reins, which is compared to the mind, and then there's the five senses. So the the um, the reins are connected to the senses, and then also to the intelligence, it's right, right, right in between.
1: Chanchala,
3: the mind is fickle and uh, the business of the mind is to hanker for things that it has lost and uh, doesn't have, and lament for things that are gone and never to be gotten again. Well, the mind's chief function is accepting and rejecting, so it's, it's kind of like the pivot point for anything the living entity conditioned in the material world is accepting or rejecting. It all pivots on the whims of the mind, unfortunately.
2: So, most of the uh, input was coming from our tradition. So, I just want to speak a little bit more generally first, and then we can zero in, we can hone in our, on uh, what our tradition says about the mind. Right? So, uh, if you're speaking to uh, just a layperson out on the street and you ask him, What is the mind? You know? So, the definition given by Wiki, (laughs) is that the mind is the set of faculties including cognitive aspects such as consciousness, imagination, perception, thinking, intelligence, judgment, language, and memory, as well as non-cognitive aspects such as emotion and instinct. So it's quite a pervasive uh, definition. And when we think about mind, we can think of two divisions. There's the conscious mind, or what is immediately aware to us, what we can speak about, or experience, uh, or express rationally. And then there is the subconscious mind. The subconscious, sub means below. So it's below the level of awareness. Um, Usually, uh, it's the mental operating system that is beneath the surface. Uh, and it's a storehouse of desires, beliefs, memories, and experiences, typically, that influence our activity on the conscious level. Uh, it's, it's kind of a sticking point for science, because the mind is a subtle energy. And our philosophy teaches that uh, the mind is a subtle element. It's not gr- like a gross element, like earth, water, uh, air, fire. Ether, uh, but it's more subtle, and, and science cannot exactly pinpoint where it is. In fact, there is uh, one can say that the mind is on some level an expression of consciousness, and science obviously can't uh, ascertain the seed of consciousness. They think it's you know in the brain, but the brain is after all just a conglomeration of material elements, neurons that are firing at each other in synapses. And science will, will uh, relegate the mind to simply uh, a function of the network of neurons that are going on. Um, um, as a medical professional, I can tell you that uh, treating disorders of the mind are the hardest to do. Right. Um, for example, if somebody has an infection, uh, their body has been invaded by a bacteria or a virus, You get rid of the bacteria or virus, and then the uh, body's immune system will uh, take care of it. But with with psychiatric problems, you know, you can't even exactly ascertain where is the mind, how are you going to to treat the illness. You know, what ends up happening is you give some kind of medication that alters the neurochemistry, the firing of the different neurotransmitters in the brain with the hopes that the psychiatric illness will go away. In in the field of psychiatry, there is a large text. Uh, It's kind of the the encyclopedia of psychiatric disorders. Anybody who has had some experience uh, with psychiatric illness or knows a psychiatrist may uh, may know of this. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, It's basically a compendium of different psychiatric illnesses, a taxonomic classification, if you will. So when we, we think of the mind empirically, we can see that it's a tool. It's a tool through which we experience the world, and it's also a tool through which we can create an experience of the world. And When we look at most Eastern thought, Buddhism, uh, the Vedantic tradition, it focuses on uh, controlling the mind. In fact, Lord Buddha states that the mind is everything. What you think, you become. So this this point of what you conceive of uh, has an influence on your words and, and ultimately your actions. And he also states, we are shaped by our thoughts, We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves." So it's very, very important. The mind is uh, the seat of our experience. So now we come to Krishna conscious philosophy. And many of you have already uh, touched upon many of the uh, points, the elements that uh, make up our understanding of the mind. So uh, the mind is one of the uh, three components that make up the subtle body, the other two being the intelligence and the false ego. It's the active hub of the sense organs. We receive sensory stimuli, and it's reposed in the mind. And as Tushta Prabhu mentioned, the analogy that is given is uh, like the reins of a chariot. The horses are the senses. The reins are the mind. The intelligence is the driver, and the soul is the uh, passenger. And the mind is uh, involved in accepting and rejecting, as Sarvatma Prabhu said. This is the nature of the mind. It becomes attracted, and similarly also, it becomes averse to sense objects. It thinks about things then it feels the actions resulting from that thinking, and then it wills things. So, in, in one sense, because it's always accepting and rejecting, it's, uh, it's kind of like a monkey, right? And uh, a dear friend uses this uh, statement. He says that uh, it's like uh, whenever you're dealing with the mind, it's like eating the mind's bananas, you know the mind is constantly bombarding us with uh, different thoughts: what to do, what not to do. I like this; I don't like that, right? Um, and an uncontrolled mind is constantly concocting so many desires. Uh, it's filled with a myriad of desires, and the it causes the soul an intense struggle. In fact. Krishna says in the 15th chapter, mana Shastrani Indriani, prakriti sthani karshati. For the soul that is situated in prakriti, right? um, prakriti sthani, mana indriyani This The five senses, including the mind, so it's sastra means six, so the five senses in the mind are causing the soul intense struggle, Karshati. So the whole purpose of uh, our uh, practice and Eastern thought, we, we talked about how uh, the uh, focus is on trying to bring the mind under control, to make it peaceful. Right? So the, the purpose of the practice of yoga is simply um, to bring the mind under control. In fact, in Bhagavad Gita 6.4, Krishna states, a person is said to be elevated in the yoga system when, having renounced all material desires, he acts neither for sense gratification nor engages in fruitive activities. And then subsequently, Krishna states that one must deliver himself with the help of his mind and not degrade himself. The, The mind is the friend of the conditioned soul and the enemy as well. So the mind has a potential to be a great friend if controlled, but a dire enemy, if unbridled. So the goal of yoga, then, is to bring the mind under control. When we speak about the word go-swami, go means senses, which include the mind, and swami means master. And when one's mind is not under control, they're go-das. One should uh, practice spiritual life with the purpose of bringing the mind, subduing the mind, curbing the mind to bring it under control. Otherwise it will impel us to go in so many different directions. So the Ashtanga Yoga path is devoted to this goal. Right? There's eight steps on the Ashtanga Yoga path. Yama, which means uh, that which not, should not be done, or that which should be abstained from. Niyam, which means observances or that, that is which, what should be done. Asana, or postures. Pranayama, which is breathing. Pratyahara, which is when the mind becomes uh, detached from the sense objects. Uh, dharana, which is absorption. Dhyana, which is meditation. And the final culmination, which is samadhi. So this is the actual goal of yoga. Not that it's some gymnastic exercise simply to keep us fit, but when Krishna explains this process to Arjuna in the sixth chapter, um, Arjuna declares to Krishna that this process that he has explained, that Krishna has explained, is untenable. It's uh, it's not possible for him to try to curb the mind, to restrain the mind because there's strict rules and regulations. You know, the yama and niyama of yoga, the first elements of it, even before we get to, you know, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, just the first elements uh, requires living in a sacred place, focusing on the super soul, practicing strict celibacy, uh, restraining the senses and the mind, living alone. Who, who's po- how, how is it possible to do this in this day and age? So Arjuna, taking the stance of an everyday man, tells Krishna, O oh Madhusudan, the system of yoga which you have summarized appears impractical and unendurable to me, for the mind is restless and unsteady. Right? The Sanskrit is Right. And he goes on to say that the mind is restless, turbulent, obstinate and very strong. Oh, Krishna, to subdue it, I think, is more difficult than controlling the wind. Right. so What Krishna tells him subsequently is quite telling, because this is a challenge to the process of dhyana yoga that Krishna has explained. So Krishna says to Arjuna, oh my mighty-armed son of Kunti, it is undoubtedly very difficult to curb the restless mind, but it is possible by practice and detachment. So, I'd like to read the purport to this verse because it actually explains uh, the process of Krishna consciousness so simply. So this is 635. If you have it, then you can follow along. Uh, The difficulty of controlling the obstinate mind, as expressed by Arjuna, is accepted by the Personality of Godhead. But at the same time, he suggests that by practice and detachment, it is possible. What is that practice? In the present age, no one can observe the strict rules and regulations of placing oneself in a sacred place, focusing the mind on super-soul, restraining the senses and mind, observing celibacy, remaining alone, etc. By practice of Krishna consciousness, however, one engages in nine types of devotional service to the Lord. The first and foremost of such devotional engagements is hearing about Krishna. This is a very powerful transcendental method for purging the mind of all misgivings. The more one hears about Krishna, the more one becomes enlightened and detached from everything and that draws the mind uh, that draws the mind away from Krishna. By detaching the mind from activities not devoted to the Lord, one can very easily learn vairagya. Vairagya means detachment from matter, and engagement of the mind in spirit." So truly, the way to uh, engage the mind is to devote it to Krishna. That's the take-home message. Hearing Krishna's transcendental activities is the formula to subdue the mad, mad mind. The more we engage with Krishna, hearing, chanting, the more we can calm the wayward mind. And then Śrīla Prabhupāda states that there is a diet for the sādaka too, and that diet is honoring Krishna prasād. So it's quite simple, hear about Krishna, eat Krishna prasād, and that is the formula to subdue the mind. So, we see in this particular pastime that Daksha's disturbed mind results in the mistreatment of Sati. He fails to follow basic etiquette. He ignores her. He fails to receive her. Uh, And from this point, we can understand that uh, the Vedic conception is relational and personal. How we interact with others has a deep bearing, not only on your progress, but also on the other person's. So in the Shastra, there's many examples given of personalities that contrast those who have controlled minds with uncontrolled minds. And the first example is the very example that we're discussing, Shiva and Daksha. Shiva is grave and serene, he's undisturbed by the slander that is being spewed by Daksha. In fact, it's his followers that actually retaliate and which result in a counter cursing. Shiva's undisturbed. He's, he's sitting quietly in the corner, absorbed in transcendence. And on the other hand, you have Daksha, who's filled with narcissistic pride. who who is deeply envious of Shiva because of his appearance, because he thinks that Shiva is not good enough for his daughter, and who thinks that he's superior to him simply because of uh, a family relation of being the father-in-law. Another example is Maharaj Ambarish and Durvasamuni. Durvasamuni uh, came to Maharaj Ambarish, he visited him, and. HE CAME WITH MANY THOUSANDS OF DISCIPLES AND MAHRAJ AMBARISH WAS OBSERVING A FAST AND ACCORDING TO THE uh, FORMALITIES OF BREAKING FAST HE TOOK SOME WATER WHICH IS simultaneously BREAKING AND NOT BREAKING THE FAST AND DURVASAMUNI CAME TO KNOW ABOUT IT AND HE BECAME ENRAGED. HE WANTED TO KILL AMBARISH FOR SUCH A MINOR OFFENSE. Right? HE BECAME CONTROLLED BY HIS ANGER whereas Mara Jambarish was undisturbed. And when Mara Jambarish's life was at stake, Krishna intervened and sent the Sudarshan Chakra to save his pure devotee. So, in conclusion, we can understand that the mind can only be steadied when it's fixed on Krishna. The mind is an active uh, organ, if you will, Right? Even the Mayavadis who attain uh, the Brahman platform because they're not constant, because the mind is active, because it's pleasure-seeking, right? And the Brahman platform, they they cannot sustain that position, and they fall down. So, at this point, I'll open up the forum to any kind of uh, comments, questions, criticisms.
3: Um, so, a couple of references are coming to my mind. My mind, also about this topic, controlling the mind in Krishna consciousness. I am thinking about how Bhakti Saranta Saraswati Thakur said that we must beat the mind. Um, I can't remember which was first, the shoe or the broomstick, in the morning and the evening, you know, a hundred times or something like that, and. From what I understand, it's generally assumed that he's referring to something specifically within the practice of Krishna consciousness, most probably sadhana of japa early in the morning or something like that. From what I understand, that he's referring to practicing Krishna consciousness very intensely. Um, so please correct me on that if I'm wrong. But that that mood of beating the mind, and then we see the verse in the eleventh canto, which talks about how the mind can't be um, over, overwhelmed by our attempts to control it, otherwise it will actually retaliate against us, just like a horse, which is, we're trying to control a horse, trying to tame a horse. If you try too hard to uh, force it right away, then you'll actually get retaliation, you'll get injured. So that point's made in the 11th Canto, and the Bhaktisana Saraswati so Thakur makes his point about beating the mind. and. I think, as Sadhikas, we ourselves, and we've also seen people who've tried to that that approach of beating the mind, and have ended up really um, kind of getting frustrated. And some people might even leave Krishna consciousness. You know, Prabhupada says it's not an artificial imposition on the mind, but some people find that it feels like that. And so, um, what what is the what is the the balance of this? Because um yeah is it is it that there's something outside of the practice of Krishna consciousness which um which helps us to um engage the mind in healthy ways but not deviant ways so therefore it doesn't become overwhelmed by constant um you know uh, domination by our practice of krishna consciousness so is there some balance or is Is it that we should simply just beat the mind? And how do we reconcile that verse with the horse?
2: So, Siddha Prabhupada has given us the sandwich program. There's a morning program. There's service during the daytime, whatever it may be. And then there's an evening program. So the purpose of the program is to be situated in goodness, where one can... uh, correctly ascertain what is the right thing to do. By being situated in the mode of goodness, you know uh, what should be done and what should not be done. Right. So that one can, uh, doesn't become carried away by the uh, constant bombardment of the mind. Right. As far as uh, beating the mind with the shoe, or the broom. Um, The mind is constantly, I mean the purpose, of the the function of the mind is simply to uh, accept and reject. It's constantly hankering for things it doesn't have and what it has it wants to renounce. Um, So through the study of Shastra, through the morning program, through chanting, one can uh, develop spiritual intelligence with which to uh, navigate the turbulent mind in the sixteenth verse of uh, this chapter on dhyana yoga um, Krishna says to Arjuna, there is no possibility of one becoming a yogi or Arjuna if one eats too much or eats too little uh, sleeps too much or does not sleep enough. So it's not that uh, we constantly repress the mind or dominate over it. Uh, you know, it has to be balanced. We have to be able to sustain our practice. Does that answer your question? That doesn't answer your question. Uh, it seems to okay. Seems
1: to, uh,
2: formulaic. What part of it seems formulaic? Uh,
3: the recipe just addresses the devotees and nobody else. And and it, if it is so then every devotee
2: should be in our witness, according to you. See so saying that the response addresses only devotees. And if the devotees are following they should all be in the mode of goodness and not be under the whims of the mind. So am I correct is that what you're saying? That's what saying. Okay. So it's true that, you know, uh, one may be a practicing devotee in good standing and uh maybe uh, following Śrīla Prabhupāda's program that has been given to us, or following in the footsteps of the predecessor Acharyas, and still be uh, dealing with the whims of the mind. So that's possible. And so in that instance, um, one can um, seek association that uplifts them, Seek seek a positive association that will help that person deal with their mental struggles. Because ultimately, uh, it's the association that will uh, drive us to become um, more focused in our practice. Mother Nidra wants to speak. Okay. So... It's to, to practice Krishna consciousness as an island is impossible, right? because the material energy is quite vast, and we are quite small. And, and because of that reason, we become overwhelmed. Uh, but if we band together, if we seek positive association, if we seek association that uplifts us, then uh, we can find that we may be able to navigate the uh, turbulence of the mind um, with greater efficacy. Um, I can just say from my personal example, if I wake up and chant my rounds in the morning, then I feel uh, better equipped to deal with what the day has to throw at me. If I come to the morning program and I'm in the association of devotees, uh, then whatever happens throughout the rest of the day, I feel, like I'm vibrating on a different frequency, if you will. So it's a practical experience. Uh, it may seem formulaic, but um, you know, the, the practicality can be experienced when you actually engage with it. So, so does that satisfy you? So, Prabhu mentioned that, you know, what I said works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. I mean, in that instance, uh, one has to really do some introspection and see what is it about that your individual or that person's individual practice that may be detracting from experiencing it. Uh, One has to have faith that the process itself will work and then engage with it. You know, in the introduction to the Gita, um, Srila Prabhupada makes the point that uh, one should at least theoretically accept that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Because if you read the Gita under the impression or under the stance uh, that Krishna is just an ordinary person, then one cannot access the great mystery. So the, the question of faith is, is necessary, and then the question of introspecting, like what is our uh, mental cultivation? You know, what is our practice during the daytime? Because the mind is like a mirror; it's simply reflecting off what we're putting into it. Uh, if you, if one associates with uh, things that are going to degrade it, then it will reflect that back at a later time. And that's why Mahaprabhu says that uh, that the chanting of Hare Krishna mantra is the process by which we can cleanse the dirt from the mirror of the mind, the dust from the mirror of the mind. So all of our authorities, if one has faith in uh, Shastra and Vedic authority, all of our authorities have said that by doing this process, um, one will make steps towards the goal of bringing the mind under control. And on some level, I mean, you know, even if you take a lay person and you ask them to chant Hare Krishna, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Not everybody may be able to experience uh, the benefit immediately, but there may be some uh, experience of benefit. And if there isn't an experience of benefit, it doesn't invalidate the process. Yes. Can I, can I
1: follow just yes, a small thing? yes.
2: So he's, Prabhu has mentioned that what if your introspection uh, involves debilitating amounts of self-loathing but, and deprecation. So if, I mean, this is also another element of how the mind uh, takes us away from Krishna, that we become uh, so much involved in our anartas that the anartha becomes the focus of our absorption, that we forget that actually the mind should be uh, focusing on Krishna. If we focus on the anartha, then the anartha is taking the natural place that Krishna should be taking. And so it's, it's, a, it's a deviation from what, uh, the path that is described. So, if one has an issue, any kind of issue, you admit it, you accept that this is my conditioning. Uh, but you don't uh, discourage yourself. You, you don't become so steeped in guilt that you, it prevents you from actually participating in the process. Because after all, if you're steeped in guilt and self-loathing and deprecation, then it's going to inhibit you from from taking the medicine. Any follow-ups, Prabhu? No, I I never disagree with you, but I mean give me
3: point that I just one to go. Okay,
2: sure. Okay, Radhasham Prabhu. It's 9, 909 so if just be
3: short Prabhu, just yes. the twelfth chapter of our we are. Yes.
2: I was just reminded how uh, should use my...
3: You're speaking about controlling the mind. So I was just appreciating in the twelfth chapter of Bhagavad Gita how Krishna says, "If you can't fix your mind on me, at least do this. You know, at least do this. At least." So there's a gradual process that's there too. So even if you can't follow with the shoe beating and the broom beating, then at least you can work for Krishna. At least you can try to remember Him. Thank you, Prabhu.
2: So this is, a, this is a good point that you bring up, that uh, there is a stepwise progression that we can take too. Uh, if one is not on the platform of constant absorption in Krishna, that uh, there are other uh, steps that can be taken preliminarily before one can finally graduate to that level. Nagar Kirtan Prabhu, would you like to speak? Please.
3: a little bit in response to what Sarvatma Prabhu was saying, um, that your response was uh, formulaic. And I guess it just really made me think about what are the options, really. You know, we we depend on formulas as uh, living entities in this material world, and even in the process of spiritual life, we have to follow particular formulas given by our gurus and our acharyas. And then um, there's other factors there also, such as mercy. Uh, they, can, they, can, they, can, they can really change the course of things and bring us to uh, a new direction. Um, and then there's our impulses. Uh, those are really the main three forces I can think of that the living entity can um, submit himself to in order to change his direction in life. Mercy, impulses, and uh, formulas. I mean, so I, I I think it's interesting to to think about this because um, it's difficult perhaps to 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 answer um, how to control the mind based off of um, mercy um, independent of following particular formulas. So I think that I think it might be a tricky. Thing to do, and so I'm just, I'm, uh, I guess I'm a little bit defending your answer um, and thinking that you know formulas are necessary. Without a formula, I mean, we have to have a formula to do the most basic things. You know, just washing dishes. You got to wash the dish, then you got to dry it, then you got to put it away. Everything is a formula, is a recipe, is a step-by-step process. So it seems like a necessity. Yes. Sorry, what was that? Nothing, I just caught up. Going. Oh, okay, I hope I, didn't, I hope I didn't overstep any boundaries or anything like that, I just. I'm, I'm glad uh, <clears throat> Sarvatma Prabhu brought up this point because uh, ultimately it led to digging deeper and more discussion. But the fact of the matter is our process is very formulaic from the beginning point gradually leading to spontaneous or spontaneity. But in the beginning it's yeah, it's it's a must. Prabhu knows that too. <laughs> Hare Krishna.
2: So just in response to what Nandra Kirsan Prabhu said, um, you know, in the pastime of the Damodar Lila, right, uh, the, the rope was always two finger breadths too short. So the acharas explained that one finger breadth is the uh, the purushar, the effort of the sadhaka, and then the other finger breadth is the mercy of the divine. So The way i understand that is that we have to make our effort our best effort and then uh, when krishna is pleased the mercy will descend Um, in chapter 3 karma yoga text 30 um, in the purport the the translation of this verse is therefore arjuna surrendering all works unto me with full knowledge of me without desires for profit with no claims to proprietorship and free from lethargy fight and in the first line of the purport, um, Śrīla Prabhupāda uh, states, the first couple sentences, this verse clearly indicates the purpose of the Gita. The Lord instructs that one has to become fully Krishna conscious to discharge duties as if in a military discipline. I mean, it's, it is it is formulaic and it is, or does require immense discipline, but that is the way that a soul can express its commitment and dedication to the divine to elicit his mercy so Mother Major, did you
1: Thanks, Prabhu. So I just wanted to say one thing about the um, horse and the broom. So, just like we were talking in, during the week about um, the mind being like a child, so sometimes the child, you know, requires a very strict discipline. They might run into the street or something. You know, strict. And uh, other times they need discipline, but it's not like life threatening. So it's another kind of discipline, but both are always there t- to be applied when needed. So the balance is um, when needed, we use the broom when needed. And we're, you know, maybe like with the horse a little bit careful. So I was just thinking that, you know, it's something that's always there. It's always a balance, it always has to be ascertained with intelligence.
2: Anybody else? Okay. Grantra Shimad Bhagavatam Ki.